Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives Today's show is with a very special person Vanessa Corcoran She is just about to publish a running book that I had a chance to read an early draft of, not early draft of, I got to read a draft of early, when I say early, I mean last week, basically. So about a month before it goes out live, this is going to be published next month, and it is a wonderful book. The title of Vanessa's book is It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint, My Road to the Marathon, and PhD. I really enjoyed this book. Vanessa has a really good story. It's not just a running story, just her her life story is really interesting, and beyond that, she's a fantastic writer. And when you combine the, both of those things, it is always a winning formula, and I just love running books. And as you know, if you follow the genre at all, there just aren't a lot out there. Uh, obviously, there's you know, run training books, and those can certainly be useful, but um, not a lot of books like this. There's a few, but not too many, and I was really excited to take a peek at this one. I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed this conversation with Vanessa. That is for sure. So let's get into it with Vanessa Corcoran. Vanessa Corcoran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So as anyone who listens to this show knows, I'm a big fan of people who write books about running. It's a huge endeavor. It's, it's, it's such like, for me, it's one of those like bucket list things. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if one day this could happen? So I live vicariously through all of you who have endeavored in this process. And you're no, um, you're no stranger to both reading and writing uh, in, in your profession and just your, your uh, childhood as well. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's it's really exciting to be at this point where the book is finally coming together. Um, it's been an on and off project for a number of years. And so, you know, to to do a running metaphor, you know, we're really standing at the 26 mile mark with 0.2 to go. And I'm really looking forward to that big finish line of publication. Well, you run many marathons in your life. That is for sure. So in the book, you detail you know, your love of books. Like right from the start. I mean, so was there ever when was there a point like in your childhood or other points in your life where the just the idea of writing a book, you know, had transformed from, you know, wouldn't it be cool if to, hey, it's not if but when type scenario. You're right. I mean, I, I always loved writing growing up and, you know, there were times where I kept a journal or I would write short stories and and it was so close to my love of reading as well. And so I always wanted to be part of a world of books, um, both as a as a reader and as a creator. Um, and so I think, you know, the first time seeing the actual possibility of putting together a full-length project, you know, came up in grad school through writing a dissertation, um, which was, you know, a book-length project in of itself. But I also knew that there were other stories I wanted to tell too. And for me that those were tied, especially to running. And when I started grad school, um, back in 2008, I had moved to Washington, DC. I didn't know anyone there here and I wanted to do something new. Um, I knew graduate school was going to be hard. 
Um, but I also knew because of that challenge that I needed something to offset that challenge. So I had decided to make a serious commitment to running. Um, I had done it, you know, off and on, you know, small points in college, but was never really a regular fitness person. Um, and started to get into it to learn my way around my college campus, to learn my way around DC. And I just, the more I did it, the more I loved it. And this was 2008. Blogging was starting to get pretty popular. And so I thought, well, I should write about this experience too, because for, you know, my friends and family, this was such an out of character thing for me to do, to be a runner. You know, I sang in high school. I played musical instruments. I was in the plays. Like Vanessa athlete did not go together (laughs) for the first 22 years of my life. So people would start to ask, you know, because they would hear, you ran 10 miles today. How is that possible? And so I just started to write everything down. And, you know, the blog was also a good outlet for grad school, too. I didn't wasn't necessarily writing about grad school, but it was something I could do when I wasn't writing, you know, grad school papers. And the posts became longer and longer. And, you know, when you think about telling stories about, you know, your marathon experiences, those are... I found those are really fun to put together and think about. and They were great reflections. And so I started to see the blog sort of expand. And even if I wasn't publishing as much, I was still writing everything down. And I also was just so excited to see so many other great running books out in the world that I really enjoyed. And, you know, I, I talk about this in the book. One of the most influential ones is is Catherine Switzer's Marathon Woman, which is just a magnificent piece of work. And what stands out to me with that book is that it's something that you can read at different points in your life and get different meaning from it. Or you can just pick it up and pull out, you know, a chapter or two and find that to be sufficient. And so I, I wanted to be able to write something that offered that kind of inspiration to people as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's interesting to me, we have folks who go from I was never an athlete growing up to someone who embraces running at such a high level like you have, Um, not simply from a performance perspective, but just for overall output. I mean, you've run a lot of miles in your life and a lot of races, and and it really is inspiring in a lot of ways. And to see that transformation over time, it it really is interesting. And to see not only that, but how how it um, at certain points mirrored some of what else was going on in your life and in other ways supported it in other ways kind of seemed to be like um, less tangentially related to your life and more of like, Hey, well, this is going great. Thank goodness. Because this other part isn't going as well as I had hoped. Um, You know, you went to uh, Holy cross, which was your dream school and quickly thereafter kind of realized that I'm, I'm, People should read the book. I'm not going to summarize the whole thing. And I'm just skipping ahead so you don't have to tell the whole story here in this one-hour podcast. But you eventually see, hey, I'm not merely part of academia right now as a college student, but I can see this being my livelihood and working at a college and you know medieval history and all the things that come with it. So the college experience for you was not merely one of education and learning and being the next step. It not only was the next step, it was also – hopefully the destination in and of itself. So talk to us a little bit about the stresses that come with that when 
your college experience, again, isn't merely a stepping stone to something else, but it is also the possible destination and what that can kind of weigh on you in terms of academic success, meaning um, the meaning of academic success in a larger concept, larger context of what it means, not just this semester, but for the next, you know, bunch of years of your life. So when I got to college, you know, I knew I was going to be a history major. I'd always loved history, but I thought the practical thing to do with a history degree was then go to law school. And so you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll enjoy this major for four years and then move on. And I had a fascinating uh, professor, a Jesuit, so a priest uh, named Father Worcester, who taught this seminar um, for first years on the Black Death and the plague, which, you know, back then didn't realize how relevant it would be to our own lives today in 2022. But we had a, it was a small group of students. There were just 12 of us. And we always loved the readings ranging from modern novels about the Black Death to reading sources from the 1300s that imagined what life was like during that time period. And we would have these really riveting discussions, you know, really pulling apart the text, debating their historical significance in a really comfortable classroom setting. And, and Father Worcester was such a great facilitator. And when there was one day where he talked about what he did as a profession and it just, a light went on for me. I had no idea that you could then just go on and, and spend your life really surrounded by books, surrounded by people who love learning. And, you know, the short answer is I never looked back. Um, I never wavered in what I wanted to do, you know, and, and pursue a PhD. but. Along the way, I started to realize the academic pressures that came with that, including within college. And, you know, Holy Cross was my dream school, but getting there, I also realized how just how I knew it was competitive from the onset, but the pressure to do well wasn't just felt um, internally, but it was, you know, this real hive mentality among students um, and, and was very competitive. And so, there were so many times there where I wondered, is this the right decision? Am I at the right place? Did they make a mistake in accepting me? And you know, slowly was chipping away and moving forward and making progress in, in my degree. But that feeling of, there were sort of two feelings that uh, followed me throughout my time in, in higher education. One was a burning desire to keep going because I loved the field so much. Um, but the second was a feeling of insecurity of, am I doing the right thing? Is my writing good enough? Are my ideas valid and interesting? And it took years to finally, you know, become more comfortable with my own, you know, intellectual contributions. Um, but it was not until, you know, very recently that that came to be. Right. And then you know, you go into grad school and you you really take off as a runner. It really, you know, your beginning of grad school and your beginning of your your real running journey in earnest kind of you know, started from the same spot. With that said, you did have moments at Holy Cross when where you engaged in running and did your two or three miles on you know around campus and stuff like that. Tell me about the run that you did with the president of the school and um, just that experience. I thought that was fascinating uh, in light of what happens after that, you know, years after that, but still. Right. So um, 
Holy Cross is a school run by Jesuits, so by priests. And so back then, our president was uh, a Jesuit named Father McFarland, um, who was in his mid-50s, a computer science professor. He would do, you know, homilies at Sunday Mass. But he was really committed to being accessible to students. And so he would come in, you know, for like after Mass, he would talk to students and shake people's hands and, you know, really try and make meaningful connections. But I was, I was an RA in college and I remember he came to RA training and he said, you know, that he's really committed to getting to know us better. And one way that he likes to get to know students is through running. So if you ever want to go for a run with me, shoot me an email and and let me know. And so at that point I had you know, enough fitness to know I could run a couple of miles. And I thought, well, this would be a pretty cool opportunity to speak with him one-on-one. And I figured, you know, I can manage 30, you know, three miles. I'm guessing, you know, at that point, I I had no idea what sort of pace I was running. But I I figured I could do three miles with this guy in his mid-50s. So we scheduled it for 6 a.m., which back then for me was, you know, the crack of dawn. It was so early. And I, you know, met him outside the Jesuit residence and he asked, you know, does five miles sound okay to you? And I didn't want to say, I don't think I can handle that. I've never run five miles before. So I just said, sure, and sort of hoped for the best. And off we went. And he it was clear that this was his regular five mile route and that it was something he did as routinely as, you know, brushing your teeth. Uh, For me, I wasn't gasping, but I could feel myself working so hard to try and keep up with him. And he was talking so freely. So I tried to ask big questions, you know, I'd ask, you know, what are your uh, what are some of the initiatives you're working on? But I also just asked how he got into running. And so he talked about doing the Boston Marathon. And Holy Cross is only about 45 minutes away from Boston. And so I knew it was significant. And I was really impressed by the fact that he had qualified for Boston um, and that had, he had still managed to run it, you know, in his 50s. And so I just tried to ask all of these different follow-up questions, um, hoping that this would uh, keep him talking and I could... <laughs> catch my breath. And Worcester, I, I can see how he qualified for Boston because Worcester's incredibly hilly. And so we and were so was your campus, down. by the way. Oh my gosh. Yes, we were in Providence. So it is, we used to call the campus, you know, a stairmaster just on how many hills there are. So it was a real effort on my part. And we had such a great conversation. And at the end, I thanked him and went back to my room and I could not walk correctly for days after, you know, which makes sense. You know, if you've never run five miles and maybe you've run two or three a couple of times and make a jump like that. But it just really, you know, did a number on me. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more. But later on, I did eventually qualify for the Boston Marathon myself. And I was really excited that I was able to email him later on and say, you know, we went on for a, a run together, you know, back when, when I was in college. And I wanted to let you know that I, I, I really got into it. And um, and now I'm going to be running the Boston Marathon in a few weeks. And, and he wrote back and he was so excited. And, you know, life move so fast and so interesting to see when you end up intersecting with people because now I'm in DC and I'm at Georgetown University, which is another Jesuit institution. And I was on campus uh, last semester 
and bumped into him because he has now moved to D.C. and is doing some more work um, out of uh, a a Jesuit residence in D.C. And I introduced myself and said, you know, my name is Vanessa. I was, you know, class of 2008. We ran together once and we just caught up. And it was so nice to see him after, you know, it had been in over almost 15 years since I had graduated college. But I think that's also a testament to the powerful connections that could be made even over a single run. You know, we had very little interactions together outside of, you know, moments like that. But you spend five miles with someone, you get to know them pretty well. And one of the themes that comes from early in the book with just the people that you've interacted with when you were a student and you're interacting with professors and advisors, in this case, even a president of a, of a college, is the how, how many people embrace the idea of you running or just running in general. And, you know, I, I've had conversations with other professors you know, while I was in college and since where there has been kind of this line of demarcation between really you know, mastering the mind within academia and then mastering like your body, whether it comes to exercising or running or some various forms of, of, um, of athletics in that in some circles that there's a sharp divide there. Like you can't be doing both. And it's so funny, like to say that someone who doesn't work in academia, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone say that? But it's, I remember talking to Kiese Lehman about this, like that he was told to stop being so active, physically active as a professor. You know, that that's not what professors do. And you hear these wild things. And here you are, a professor at one of the best schools in the world. And, you know, you've done Marathoner many times over. Um, what do you think those early mentors of yours had in terms of impact on you and going down this road as a runner? Because I can see things potentially going a little differently if maybe you hadn't gotten the exact same kind of feedback. It's so interesting that you say that. I I am very grateful that from the beginning, you know, my professors in graduate school thought this was a wonderful thing to do and not a distraction from college uh, from graduate school. Um, and I remember when I got into it, it and when I was starting graduate school, I could I was very young. I was 22 when I started graduate school. Most of the students were coming back to school and were in their late 20s or early 30s, which just seemed like a different, they were at different points of their lives than me. You know, they didn't balk at going out to dinner and, you know, picking up the tab. They had families, they had, you know, apartments that they didn't have three roommates in, you know, they just, they were so settled. And I was not. And I, I I think I projected a lot of, you know, nervous energy. And so I think, from the beginning, you know, my advisor, uh, Dr. Catherine Jansen, knew that I probably needed some sort of nudging or something to to keep my head afloat. And so I remember one time after class, we were walking out together, and she asked how I was getting settled in. And it really did ask more from a, a general point of concern, not, you know, how are you understanding the material, but, you know, how are you adjusting to this new life? And so I thought, well... Why don't I tell her, you know, I'm going to try and do this marathon thing and was was just so excited. And her instant response was good for you. This is fantastic. And then she proceeded to tell me because she's a, a medieval historian who does a lot of archival research, you know, primarily in these, you know, 
in the Vatican archives. And she she would talk. She told me how, you know, in lifting all of these, you know, heavy medieval books uh, and craning over over these different manuscripts, that she actually had to get physical therapy for her shoulder and you know from all of the sitting. And so she said, "You need to do things." to counteract anything like that. So any form of physical fitness is great. And so as the running got better and, you know, I, I completed my first marathon um, and then qualified for Boston. I mean, you know, there's so much of running that can be kind of obscure, obscure but the Boston Marathon is such a, a universal thing that the people understand the significance of. And so um, I think she and my other professors saw, okay, well, this is something that she's really working hard towards and she's doing it while getting better at grad school, you know, and, 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 you know, it was a bumpy process of adjusting to grad school and the, the intense workload, but there were all of these moments of incremental pro- progress, and that's and that's what's so similar with running too. It's so hard to recognize in the moment on one run or on one paper, you know, if you're making improvements, but it's when you stand back and you see the cumulative months of effort, whether it's, you know, three months of marathon buildup or three months of studying for exams, that all of those day in, day out moments have really paid off. And so I was starting to be able to see that more on both fronts. And it was interesting because it seemed as though, shockingly, that your efforts as a runner seemed to be getting you um, the more kind of like consistent, even on some level, more immediate results that you wanted more so than your academics, which was, you know, kind of ironic considering that, the, the, you know, your your passions and what you were working towards, you know, you, you detail exquisitely how you struggled with Latin for so long in grad school. And at the same time, you're like knocking down miles and qualifying for Boston and doing all these things, which, you know, maybe if someone who's reading your, your book is more from the academic side, doesn't realize that these are huge accomplishments that you're achieving pretty early on in the process. And yet on the academic side, which was your true goal, you were really, you know, busting your tail and not seeing the kind of results that you had hoped for. Absolutely. It was so frustrating because if I could have switched the two skill sets, I would have, um, you know, I'm a way better runner. <laughs> than I am at translating Latin. That has not changed in the past decade. Um, and it it did kind of crush me at times because I knew proportionately, you know, I qualified for Boston pretty quickly. Um, and had I been able to make such progress with my Latin and with graduate school, I would have finished much more quickly, much more hap- happier, <laughs> Uh, but that was not the case. And so, yes, there, there were definitely times where then running was a relief because it was so also concrete, too. You know, I hit this time today. I, uh, you know, was able to finish this kind of workout completely versus, you know, when you're writing a paper or writing a dissertation, it's really hard to say, oh, well, I, I accomplished a lot today because how do you measure something that's so qualitative? Um, so I was I was grateful that running could offer a sense of victory, but sometimes I, I needed the victory in graduate school too. Can you talk about how running has that 
points in your life been something that has eased the burden of the stresses that you felt in other areas, but at other points, in addition to that, that it wasn't necessarily like a cure-all, right? And you you open up on this point um, in the book and in the preface, uh, but I think it's an important one, especially when there's it's a popular meme to say like running is my therapy type thing, and there's under there's understandable wisdom in that phrase at the same time it's a little too pithy to be followed completely so could you just talk about that and your experience on both sides of that spectrum absolutely i mean running has had incredible benefits to my mental health there's no doubt about that um when i had a test coming up you know it it became my ritual to go for a run the morning of a test that significantly would at least calm my nerves a bit um, and, you know, or if there were times where I was trying to like work out an idea, I could spend some time on the run and, and something about being away from the page, you know, gave me some clarity to then go back and, and work on it. But you're right. It is not a cure-all. And that was sometimes a hard thing to realize, like, particularly as I was getting really into my dissertation, you know. We, we talk about like knocking out all those different milestones. Well, in graduate school, you have all these different check marks or these boxes to check off, you know, on the road to the PhD. And I had gotten to, you know, pretty much the last one, which was write the dissertation. And my progress had just stagnated. I had really struggled with just having, you know, suddenly infinite time to work on this big document um, and struggling to, you know, get organized and and find, you know, different ideas to write about and and dealing with writer's block was, was really difficult. Um, And in some ways it was also difficult because, you know, I had professors who knew that I had managed to, for the most part, stay on track throughout my time in graduate school and now I was hitting a roadblock. And, you know, sometimes they would say things like, well, I know you're running. I know that's going to help. I, I know you're organized. I know you'll f- figure this out. And I had reached a point where it was clear this was not working well. Um, and even if I ran, it just, it wasn't enough. And I, I knew I could run as if I was training for the Olympics. That is not going to ease you know, the real concerns I had that I was not going to be able to finish my PhD and that... Oh, come on, Vanessa. We all know that Olympic runners are all scholars in medieval history. This is like, we all take this for granted at this point. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if, you know, if it meant... If running twice a day could have given me the mental clarity, I would have run twice a day, you know, but it it, it just didn't. Um, and I could... And the time away for running was still good, but it also would just give me then more time to think. All of a sudden I had infinite time to think. Um and 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 not positively. And there was, you know, all of the the great running analogies and ways I could self-motivate were slowly just really sl- slipping away. And I just felt like I was losing my footing and I wasn't I was still running regularly, but it definitely wasn't bringing around you know, the same joy that it had. And then there were times where, you know, no one said, oh, you should cut back on running to spend more time on your writing. But I started to wonder, am I spending too much time on this when 
you should be writing was the defeating mantra that kept going through my head, you know, and I was starting to just lose, not necessarily lose interest in, in, you know, hobbies and things, but feeling guilty about doing them. Um, You know, reading the idea of reading a fun book. Well, why would you read a fun book if you're supposed to be reading an academic book and writing one? Uh, Why would you be running if that's going to cut out of your writing time? And so it just, I could feel things starting to get out of control. And and there were a couple of moments in the book where it really came to a head. And ultimately, you know, a set of feedback was the sort of culminating moment that just was a real indication that things weren't working anymore. Um, And that um, the anxiety that I had about writing and about, you know, my lack of confidence this was just no longer sustainable. Um, and there had been all of these moments, you know, throughout my adulthood that I had sort of put band-aids on. Well, this was a temporary problem uh, and an isolated incident. And there was something about this moment that just ripped all of those band-aids off and exposed that there were some really serious issues with, you know, clinical anxiety and depression that said, we need to really rethink how you're living your life um, and, you know, getting medication that helped with sleeping because once I could sleep better, I wasn't on a, you know, exhausted worry cycle all of the time um, and seeking therapy and learning, you know, learning so much about myself. You know, I, I've been a lifelong learner and it was apparently time for me to look inward and learn more about my own thoughts and my own, you know, negative tendencies. And how did I get on these um, cycles of anxiety? And what were things that I could do to prevent them the next time they happen? Because, you know, a therapist never made any promises that we would figure this out forever, but it was learning how to live with it um, and to try and stop things before they reached, you know, such a culminating point. Right, and it was kind of it was a, an evocative way of saying it too. Just the idea of like you know, that opening up um, visualization that you created, and you know, for a lot of people, the idea of doing that, while academically speaking, um, makes sense. It's also can be a terrifying thing to just visualize because you say, "All right, well, well, then what? Like, I don't want to go on medication. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. What kind of Pandora's box am I opening here?" And just the idea of going through that, I can imagine being a terrifying experience to be on the precipice of that, even if someone knows that that's probably the path that they should start walking down. Um, for you, look, going through that experience, if you were going to advise somebody who was nearing that precipice, what would you say to them? Do it before it's at this point. You know, I mean, I, I was really fortunate that I had the support of my husband, Pat, and of my parents who, you know, always assured me that they cared about me no matter what. And that completion of a PhD, whether I did it or not, did not change what they thought about me. You know, they always said, you know, we know you could do it, but you don't have to do it, too. Um, but what I wish I had done earlier was just, you know, talk to my professors and let them know that I had these real concerns because the the feeling of failure or the fear of failure 
had just consumed me for so long. And I, you know, shortly after I had graduated, I, I spoke with my professor about this and I said, you know, I, I used to think you were going to kick me out of school. Um, and she was horrified when I told her that. And she said, if you had ever told me that, we would have told you, you know, how much we believe in you. But I had just kept it bottled up. You know, in my current job, you know, I'm a, an advising dean at Georgetown. And so I work with a lot of high performing students who come in to see me when they're struggling academically or they're concerned about finding a job after graduation Um uh, or they're, you know, a new transfer student and they're struggling to fit in. Um, and what I try and do now is just get them to see they do belong here. You know, they're in the right place and we can figure things out. Um, and so I've become a lot more forthcoming with them because of my own experience. And, and I also tell them, you know, short versions of my story as well to let them know, yes, I've, I've made it here, but there were a lot of bumps along the way. And I had to ask for help at a lot of places. And I'm so relieved that I did because any project, whether it's running a marathon, getting a degree, starting a family, um, a new job, a new business, not, none of that could be done alone. You know, we need other support, whatever th that means. And Asking for help is a good thing. Um, and, you know, getting the support makes all the difference. Um, but it's also really hard to be vulnerable and put yourself out there like that. And one of the themes of the book seems to be you, it's kind of sets up where you're like someone who is, you know, working incredibly hard really like grinding through a lot of these processes and you're surrounded by these people who don't need to quite put in the the kind of rigor and you know just constant work that you that you're that you're doing and then and yet you're still maybe not getting some of the results that they did in the process of writing this book and and going back in time and kind of reliving these moments was that I know sometimes we, we we don't understand the situation as we're going through it and we get a better sense of it after the fact. Was that a dichotomy that born out to be true as you look back on the past or was that something that was kind of created in the moment as you were going through it and maybe not fully aware of exactly what was happening either with others or exactly um, maybe the positives that you were doing and maybe just holding yourself to a, lo a lesser standard than you were actually achieving? Um, I think I think both. I I definitely had classmates that, you know, without a doubt, were more gifted in some areas than I was. So, you know, I in, in the book, I talk about my friend Wes, who was just, he is a better Latin scholar than I am. And he could think in that way. He could, you know, make the right connections on the spot. And so I would watch him in class, you know, do better translations. I watched him, you know, get, you know, do better on our tests. Um, so I always knew, you know, okay, he, he's better at this than me, but he was also, he was, he is a dear friend of mine. And one thing I really appreciated about his friendship was that he was also good at showing me in the moment, you know, there are times where, you know, he would say, 
Vanessa, you're making important contributions to class as well. You know, we were in these seminars where, you know, we were always trying to impress the professor and, and say the right things. And he had helped me in the beginning see, you know, that person's comment was BS. <laughs> They're just talking to talk. Um, and it took a little while for for me to really understand, you know, one, not everything that when people talk for 10 minutes on end, that doesn't necessarily mean they're an expert on, on everything. Um, but also to think about the ways that I was making progress as well. Yeah, because I, I know that, you know, just looking at, again, this is about you, not about me, Lord knows. And any podcaster out there knows that we should probably talk less to the point you just made. We're like the kids in class who talk too much for no reason. Um, so with that said, I know that I there have been times in my life where I've set up this dichotomy and been like, that's not, I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, I was doing good things. Why was I painting myself as this person who wasn't doing positive stuff or um, things like that? You know, because obviously you went to really accomplished schools. You were working your tail off. You qualified for Boston while you were in grad school. You did amazing things. And it really is inspiring to see. One thing we often see is folks, even in that age group of younger 20s, not taking on events like the marathon, right? And there are a lot of reasons for that. But I think ultimately it just isn't, I wouldn't say it's discouraged, but it's just not encouraged actively, right? It's just kind of like, it's out there if you want to do it, fine. Um, but it's not really a, a big deal for a lot of people. I spoke with Jocelyn Rivas a couple of weeks ago who took on marathon in high school as part of a, a program with the LA Marathon, um, which I know there aren't many of them out there. What was your experience in terms of, you know, going through that at that age? And, you know, would you do it again at that age? And when you're talking to people, you advise, you advise students now for a living. Obviously, you're not there for necessarily athletic advice, but this is part of a holistic, living a holistic life. So what, what, just, what are your thoughts on approaching this kind of athletic achievement at that age and maybe how we should approach it um, within the running community? Because it really isn't a topic that we discuss very often. I mean, admittedly, I swung for a very big fence, you know, never having run more than five miles in my life and then saying, okay, you know what, in six months, I want to be able to run a marathon. But that's how a lot of people approach it, too. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people come to the show and say something very similar. I think for me, I almost needed the big goal because I needed something so <laughs> shiny to keep me going during grad school that I needed to I needed that much of a confidence booster at a big project that I could work on simultaneously that, you know, if, if I had said, okay, well, I want to be able to train to run a 5k. I don't know if it would have hooked me in the same way. I mean, you know, there, there's something so special about the marathon, all of the pageantry, you know, everyone that comes out in support of it, you know, it's, it is a happy moment to witness in any shape or form, whether you're running it, whether you're organizing it, volunteering, walking by on, apparently on a marathon day on the street and seeing people run by, you know, it is a celebration of humanity at its finest. And that's not to say that you can't get that in a 5K or a 10K, but there is something so special about the marathon. And that first marathon that I ran was a life-changing moment. Just seeing all of that on display for the first time. And again, I had never done anything that 
that big before, which, you know, you're 22. You're probably not going to do a lot of big things at that point. But it just, I was transformed by that. I was inspired by the other people who were out running it. Um, I was in, I was inspired by the people, you know, my parents and friends who came out to watch me. You know, it just the, this collective sense of love around the running community was just so moving. And I just I wanted more of that. So then I kept going and going. Um, you know, and, and later on, you know, a friend of mine from grad school, uh, Sarah, who ended up becoming my running coach, had me scale back and sort of go back to the basics and do much more 5K, 10K specific training because I had never done anything like that before. And, you know, I think if I had set out to, you know, from the beginning, I want to achieve all of these different time goals, then yes, doing it from more of a a slow buildup would have made more sense. But I think I think at that moment, I knew I needed to do something big to feel a bit bigger inside. Yeah. And it's just not even if you complete a marathon, which obviously can be magical, as you as you just said, but just going out for the hour to hour and a half long runs that are just part of the marathon process makes such a difference, right? Even if you never run the race, I think that, that those experiences can mean a lot. And you know, just from a confidence perspective and just being out there and doing doing harder things and making it so they aren't hard anymore, I think can be can be really valuable. And just like, you know, just running for an hour and a half for to an hour, it, it's just it just feels different. Whereas if you run, if you're training for five Ks, you can go run five Ks and never really do that. You'd probably be better at five Ks if you do do it, but you don't have you can go and run two or three miles a day and go run a five K no problem. Um, and not worry about not finishing or anything like that. So I think just the marathon training experience is one that's valuable, even if the race never happens, um, in a sense. Definitely. I mean, I remember the first time that I did the 20 mile run and it's such a built up thing, you know, in, in the training cycle that, I mean, you have to, you know, make sure that people know, like, it's not the end all be all if you don't do the 20 miles, you know, um, 18 is good, you know, something close to that. But there is something, I mean, 20 miles, you know, people don't necessarily want to drive 20 miles to go somewhere. It's Uh, a lot of time to be on your feet. We're talking usually over three hours, well over three hours for some folks. Yes. And I remember, you know, setting everything up for that first 20 mile run in terms of placing the Gatorade bottles and mapping out the course and, you know, finding clothes that would be similar to what I would wear on marathon day. Um, It felt like putting on a show. It felt like a dress rehearsal. And that was my previous life was the music background where you did do dress rehearsals. And that's where all the butterflies would come from. And I I do remember being so excited and curious just to even see how it was going to feel. Um, Even though I had done, you know, 18 miles prior to that. Um, and afterwards, I mean, the satisfaction of saying like, I ran 20 miles today, like that was a pretty big deal. Um, and I think that's why it's such an important thing, you know, within the training run, within the marathon cycles, because it gives you that confidence because you've just done something outside of yourself. Oh gosh, for sure. And I think one little snippet of the book that I thought was hilarious and you don't, you don't like linger on it for too long because it definitely is not the point of the book was when Snowmageddon and Snowpocalypse hit the D.C. area, which normally doesn't get very much snow at all. All of a sudden, there's they're not counting it by inches. They're counting it by feet. And you're 
in this little like one mile paved area training for the Boston Marathon, which you, you know, obviously were so excited to run. Hey, I don't know about you, but there's, there's ice and snow outside my window right now. And it can be a pain in the butt to find those areas to run. And it's so easy for some of us who are predisposed to procrastinating people like myself and you'd be like, oh, I guess it's not going to happen today or whatever. So tell us what you did because I thought this was awesome. And like, it was a huge like kudos moment to you and so obvious why you've achieved so much in your life that you made this happen. So thank you. I was living on campus at Catholic at that point during my master's program when Snowmageddon hit and it just really shut everything down in D.C. I mean, we didn't have classes for 10 days. Um, and the snow drifts were just enormous and, you know, any running route that I had normally set up was just gone. I, and I remember like the next day thinking, okay, well, I'm going to just, I'll run in the snow. Surely the something will be plowed. And even if it's slower, fine, but no, it was just drifts abound. And I, I just, I think I ultimately gave up the first time and, and, and walked back. But when I was walking back, I saw that there was this uh, part of the perimeter of campus that was uh, cleared off. And I thought, well, there's nobody around. I can measure this and I can just run back and forth. And it's a straight line and it's going to be kind of boring, but at least I can run. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was a half mile and then I would double it to make a mile or if it was a mile long. But I would just run back and forth and I had different workouts that I was doing at that point. So I measured, you know, okay, this is the quarter mile mark. And I would go back and forth. And, you know, it was a spot that was near the the metro station. And there was a campus safety police car that was always parked out in front. And I'm sure he thought I was out of my mind because I would just go back and forth all morning long trying to do these workouts. And, you know, there was one day where it was 12 miles and it just, I mean, it was, it was, it was boring. But it was not treadmill boring. And that was the thing was I thought, well, I would much rather have, you know, some degree of monotony in in this versus staring at those painful blinking red numbers on the treadmill. So and you were doing this for weeks. This was not like this. DC was not prepared for this. No, it, it, it did take a couple of weeks. And I remember the first day when enough snow had melted because it was then suddenly like a balmy 45 degree day. And you would have thought it was summer based on how some people dressed, but the amount of runners that went out um, that day, because I remember running around the national mall and it really was like, Oh, the, the apocalypse is over and we survived and now we can happily run around. And it was so fun. And, and it, it was so worth the wait. All right. So tell us about the book, when it's coming out-ish, and how people can get it, because I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, So it's a marathon, not a sprint. My road to the marathon and PhD comes out on March 8th, 2022. Uh, March 8th is International Women's Day, and I thought that was good timing uh, for the release of the book. Uh, It will be available on Amazon, both in Kindle and in paperback. And I'm really excited for people to read it. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for putting this all together. It truly is fantastic. Thanks again, Matt. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
If you liked this conversation, well then, frankly, if you're listening to me talk now, then you certainly did. That's why you stayed to the end, and I'm so glad that you did. Go into the show notes, and you'll see the link to pre-order Vanessa's book. Also, to follow her on social media as well. Vanessa, as you just heard, is a wonderful person. Following her is really, really fun and enjoyable. And hey, go pick up her book. You know you're going to like it. I'm telling you. I don't get to read a ton of books. That's for sure. And I read this one. Usually when I consume a book, it's on Audible. I read this sucker and I read it in PDF form. And you know I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't good. That's for sure. So Vanessa, great job. Congratulations. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. So have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.